If you have a copy of God's Word, we're in the book of Hebrews chapter 10 this morning. Book of Hebrews chapter 10. I'd invite you to turn there. Book of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39. Continuing our study through the book of Hebrews this morning. The message for this morning is entitled, A Faith That Endures. A Faith That Endures. We're reading from the English Standard Version, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 through 39 this morning. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance." so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray this morning for the message. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that it would penetrate our hearts and lives this morning, not because I have anything great to say, but because your word is great and you are great. Father, I pray that you would speak to us this morning in areas where we need to hear you speak. And Father, I pray that we respond this morning in areas that we need to respond to your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The author of Hebrews here has just finished giving the church a kind of a spiritual spanking. If you remember in the messages leading up to this passage of scripture, the words he had just given were these terrifying words. And he concluded with that, those words with this, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And now he brings an encouragement that they would have a faith that endures in the midst of troubling times. You know, and as I read through this passage over and over again, I wondered if we've ever experienced persecution in our lives. The reality is in America, we have never truly experience what could be called the persecution for our faith. Yes, we may have had insults thrown our way, and maybe we were rejected by people when they found out we took our faith seriously. And sure, we've had people slander us or maybe even lie about us, but you know, we probably have never been beaten for our faith. I doubt we have ever been tortured or thrown in prison because of our faith. We have never had our property 
plundered or confiscated because of our faith. We've never had our family taken away because of our faith unless we happen to be from another country. And I thought on this for a while. I thought of this text and I thought that a, a pastor who has experienced real true persecution for their faith could probably do a far better job preaching this text than I could. But with that said, I'm still called to faithfully preach the scriptures and that's what we will do this morning. Let me draw your attention to another reason this text is a difficult text to preach. Because these people joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They went to prison. They were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and yet they had joy. The reason this passage is difficult to preach is because so many Christians have succumbed to the American dream and we have therefore bought into a false view of Christianity that puts a profound emphasis on the benefits of faith and so we are told to to come to Jesus. He has a great plan for your life. He will help you overcome all of the problems that you face in your life. He will bless you. You can live a full and happy life. And we peddle Jesus like he is some sort of marketing gimmick onto people. And the solution to all of their problems. Need to lose weight? Try Jesus. Need a better job? Try Jesus. Need a happy marriage? Try Jesus. And we tell people that receiving Jesus will fix all of their problems in life. And for some reason, telling people that they may be persecuted, lose all of their material possessions, and perhaps even their life, doesn't sell a whole lot of books, and is not very attractive. Many Christians come to Jesus for what he can give to them, not persecution. And so when trials come, they get angry with God and they decide they will not follow him anymore. They did not sign up for persecution or hardship. What is wrong with us? Why has American Christianity strayed so far from the truth of what the scriptures say about living the Christian life? I mean, we're told it's a fight. We are told to expect hardship and trials in John 16.33 and 2 Timothy 1.8 and 1 Peter 4.12. We are told that we will go through many tribulations, Acts 14.22. Having abundant life is not about a trouble-free life, but it's all about having joy in the midst of suffering. Jesus made it pretty clear when he said that if you want to follow him, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily in Luke chapter 9 verse 23. When he says you must deny yourself and take up your cross, he's not speaking of something that is a little irritating to us. The cross was an instrument of slow, agonizing, and torturous death, and yet Jesus says to take it up every single day. The author is encouraging his readers. He tells them he knows they're not going to turn away from Christ, but that the faith will endure in spite of their suffering, in spite of their hardships. The passages of Scripture, we, in this passage of Scripture, we see how to have faith and we, we see how to have an enduring faith and that there's going to be trials and that there's going to be persecution. If we want faith that endures, we must remember God's working in the past 
We must respond to God's working in the present. And we must look to His promises for the future. Now to be clear, before we get into the meat of this message, I believe the author is speaking about genuine saving faith. And that genuine saving faith endures trials and bears fruit in our lives. In other words, there is observable evidence of a transformed heart. And I believe that this is what the parable of the soils is all about. And the only one in the parable of the soils that is saved is the one that produced fruit. That is not to say that believers will not fail or have problems. We struggle with sin on a daily basis, but God changes the heart of every single believer. And the Holy Spirit takes up residence in the lives of every single believer. And it's absolutely preposterous to think that, that we will not bear fruit. To think that the Holy Spirit living inside of us means that we would not bear fruit as God's will in us is more powerful than our will for disobedience. For the true believer, they will have a faith that endures and they will bear fruit to eternal life. So with that said, let's get into the message. I already gave you the basic outline. First, to have a faith that endures, we must remember God's working in the past. We must remember God's working in the past. In verse 32, the author calls on these believers to remember the former days. It was a challenge for them to remember how they had previously stood during the persecution under Roman Emperor Claudius. He is drawing their minds back to the time when they saw God work in their lives in spite of the difficult circumstances that they were faced with. What is his point? His point is to look how you responded to persecution. Look how, look what you did then. And so if persecution comes in the future, respond the same way. Remember how God worked in the past. There, there are three things here that I believe he's reminding them of. And three things I believe that we also need to be reminded of this morning when it comes to God's working in the past. First he says, remember how God enlightened and enabled you. Remember how God enlightened and enabled you. Look at what the author says. After you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes pub being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes partners of those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison. How were they enabled to endure what they endured? Because they were enlightened. Now let me ask you, what is the opposite of being enlightened? I thought of that. I said, well, if he says you're enlightened, what's the opposite of it? Well, the opposite of being enlightened would be to be ignorant of something. Here's the thing. Through all of Scripture, the unbeliever is described as being blind, unable to see the light of the gospel. Only God can command light to shine out of darkness. Listen to 2 Corinthians Chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of 
of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen, God caused the light to shine in our hearts. Before that, we lived for ourselves. We did not, we, we, we did our own thing. We lived our own life. We had no need for a Savior. And we certainly were not enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out the things that we read about here in Hebrews chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 10. Christians uh, were not able to, uh, people were not able to carry this out unless they are enlightened by God. Until God enlightens us, we are not enabled. Until He takes off the spiritual blinders, we have no idea how terrible our sins are and how holy God is. We do not appreciate the fact that the Son of God gave Himself on the cross to pay our sin debt because we are in darkness. We don't understand it. We're ignorant of what God has done until by His grace He opens our eyes. We once were blind, but now we see. Before we move on, one last thing. It's possible to have a degree of enlightenment and even theological understanding and still be lost. There are people that know a lot about the Bible who have never repented of their sins. They have a whole lot of head knowledge of Scripture and Jesus, but they're headed for an eternal hell. So he says, remember how God enlightened and enabled you. Secondly, remember your joy regardless of circumstances. Remember your joy regardless of circumstances. Look at verse 34 with me. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Do you remember what it was like when you first came to Christ? When you first received Christ as your Savior? Do you remember how you felt and the joy that filled your heart? Often we feel like we could conquer the whole world. And we want others to know so badly what we know. And it was no different for the Hebrew believers. However, they had the opportunity to display their joy in the midst of difficult trials. In verse 32, he calls it a hard struggle with sufferings. That word struggle in the Greek is athlesias. It is where we get our word athletic. It refers to a contest, an open clash between two opposing groups or individuals. The picture here is a hard-fought contest. Satan is putting up a fight, and some of them were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. That word publicly exposed is where we get our word for theater. It is to be disgraced publicly. Be made a show to be overcome, disgraced, publicly conceived of as being set on stage for public viewing. So how do you think strong Jewish families reacted when one of their family members accepted Jesus as the Messiah? They were ridiculed, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and rejected by their own family and friends. Some of them had even been imprisoned. And those who were not in prison went and gave aid to those who were in prison, therefore publicly identifying themselves with those that were in prison. Prison then was, uh, was not like prison now. When you were in prison, someone had to provide for you or you had nothing. And so these Christians visited their brothers and their sisters in prison and brought them food and brought them clothing, etc. because the jail did not supply this. Some of them had lost their property. Their homes were destroyed. 
They had lost their earthly possessions. We'll get to that more in a few minutes. But the key to all this is found in verse 34. When it says, joyfully. Joyfully. They didn't just grit their teeth and endure hardship. They didn't just say, whoa, I'm going to put up with this. So they joyfully accepted it. And I read that. And I thought, what does that say about us? I mean, I see all kinds of Christians going bonkers because their property taxes went up. Let alone let them be treated unfairly. They will sue you for everything you have. They will get what they wanted plus some. There's no such thing as suffering with joy anymore. We're going to get our way. We have rights. I'm not advocating for being a floor mat for people. But I'm not sure we truly understand this level of suffering or what it means to suffer in our lives with joy. These believers knew joy in such a profound way that as they watched angry mobs come and haul all their stuff away and level their houses and destroy everything that they had, they accepted it with joy. That that, that doesn't even make sense to me. We'll get to that. Joy. He says, remember your joy regardless of the circumstances that you were faced with. Thirdly, third thing that he wanted them to remember is remember your better and abiding possession. Remember your better and abiding possession. These Hebrew Christians were able to grasp something that few of us are able to do, and that is this present loss brings lasting gain. Present loss brings lasting gain. They understood material possessions are only short-lived and their inheritance in Christ was eternal and did not compare to anything that this earth temporarily offered. Now, these verses reveal to us four ways in which we see that they remembered their better abiding place. Their better and abiding possession. And I think that they would aid us to think beyond this world and the things of this world. So let's quickly look at those four things. First, our focus moves from what is temporary to what is eternal. Our focus moves from what is temporary to what is eternal. Have you ever noticed how often the things that are temporary steal our attention away? The only way that They could accept the plundering of their property was because they knew they had a better possession and an abiding one. Their treasure was not of this earth. But they, as Matthew chapter 6 verse 20 tells us, it is stored up treasure. They stored up their treasure in heaven where it can't be stolen or destroyed. They knew Jesus had gone on ahead of them and prepared a place for them just as He had promised and is coming again to take them to be with Him. Now, I'm not saying that it was easy to lose their earthly possessions. I'm saying they had a proper perspective knowing that their earthly possessions were only temporary. Listen, church, being a Christian is supposed to define human nature. 
To joyfully accept the plundering of your property is against every fiber of our being. We love our comfort. We love our safety. We love our possessions. We love our job. We love our money. When we get things, we rejoice. When we get a new car, we rejoice. We go and tell people, did you see my new car? Look at my nice new car. Check out this car. Look what this car will do. Look how fancy it is. We buy a new house. We rejoice. Look at my house. Look how great it is. Look at these floors. Look at this. Look at that. Look at this. We get the latest gadget. We rejoice. Did you see what the new iPhone 10 can do? It's amazing. But these people rejoiced and they lost their possessions. They had a better possession and a lasting possession. Here's what I see as a problem in America today. We have made Jesus Christ subservient to our earthly possessions when he is supposed to be superior to them. He's supposed to be more valuable so that when we lose those earthly possessions, our response is, oh well, I have Jesus. And I'll be with Him for eternity. This life is not all there is. You see, our focus as Christians moves from what is temporary to what is eternal. We realize that this life will one day end, but we will live forever with Jesus, and that's what matters. He is supposed to be more valuable than anything we possess. Secondly, what we, or we value what God thinks over what others think. We value what God thinks over what others think. Listen. It says they were publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Now, if if this were the church today, we would have to do some serious uh, PR. We'd have to launch a, a public relations campaign. We have to, well, how are we going to fix this? Today, Christians are really good about being undercover Christians. Right? You know what I mean? We do all we can to blend in with the rest of society. Because we don't want to be seen as some sort of religious nut job. So I gotta blend in the best I can. And so, so even when something happens or we are around something that perhaps makes us feel uncomfortable as a Christian, we still do all we can just to blend in because we don't want to be like, uh, uh, uh um, we don't want others to think of us in a different way. And because we think too, too much of what others think, so we just try to blend in. So when that person tells that joke that, maybe we shouldn't be laughing at, we laugh at it because we don't want somebody to, to think differently of us. We feel conviction, but we just deny it. Our focus is not to be on pleasing people. We are more afraid of offending a person than offending the God of this universe. Who looks into our hearts. We are to care what God thinks. Not what my neighbor thinks. Not what my friend thinks. Not what my 
coworker thinks, not even what my boss thinks, but I am to care what God thinks. Worldly people live to hear the accolades of others. They live to hear other people tell them how great they are and how awesome they are, or that they did a good job and they want people to like them and they want to leave a good impression. But those who know Jesus should live their lives to please Jesus. They desire that Jesus be pleased, not people be pleased. Now that is not an excuse to be a jerk to other people. But what I'm saying is that when it comes to pleasing Christ or people, you always choose Christ. Always. Third, God comes before everything. God comes before everything. Unbelievers live for themselves. We're self-centered people. It's just who we are. Even when we help someone else, oftentimes it's because we want to get something in return, whether it's applause or people saying, oh, good job. Or we do it for our own advantage. We think that the main goal in life is just to be happy. Even if it's at the expense of someone else. However, as Christians, we are to focus on loving God and loving others, which Jesus said are the two greatest commandments. Christians are called to take their focus off of self and put it onto God. We're even to consider others more important than ourselves. And so, what did these Hebrew believers do? They put God coming before everything into practice. Because when their brothers and sisters were in prison, they visited them, brought them food, cared for them. They were willing to share in the sufferings of those who were mistreated. God comes before everything. Fourthly, we submit to God's sovereign will. We submit to God's sovereign will. And I believe this is sometimes one of the hardest things for Christians to understand, grasp, and live out. Mainly because people don't teach on it much anymore and because Christianity in general has shifted its focus from God being in control to a more humanistic approach where we have put man in control so God is treated like a genie in a bottle as opposed to being holy. So what happens, especially in the life of the unbeliever, is the demand for God to treat them fairly and how they deserve to be treated. And what they fail to recognize is that God were to treat everyone the way that they deserve to be treated, we would go straight to hell. When tragedy strikes, the unbeliever will call out against God and tell God that they don't deserve this. Or they will tell him, God, it's not fair. At what point did we think that as sinful man, we can stand in judgment of a holy God who does as he pleases? Why do we think that God is bound by us? Look at what the Hebrew believers. Look at them. Some of them were thrown in jail. What does that mean? It means some of them weren't. Right? Why did some go to jail and others did not go to jail? Well, because God's sovereign. In His plans and purposes. God does as He sees fit. And different people have a different purpose, even in the regards of persecution and suffering. Some people have to suffer more. 
Some people do have to go through a lot more than other Christians. Does this mean that we have a right to question the wisdom of God when God sends a trial our way and other believers don't have to go through that same trial? Do we get to question the justice of God and say, well, God, that's not fair that I have to go through this, but that Christian over there doesn't have to go through it? No. If we are the ones who are not in prison for our faith or not going through the trial, then we should visit those who are going through the trial or who are in prison and we should have compassion on them. If trials come our way, then we submit to God's sovereign will and we trust Him that He is working all things together for our good, even if we can't see it or understand it. So to have faith that endures first, we must remember God's working in the past. We remember how God enlightened and enabled us. Remember your joy regardless of circumstance. Remember your better and abiding possession, which completely changes your life because you realize it is more valuable than earthly possessions. And so as you go through a trial, if you want your faith to endure, there are some things to remember. But also, to have a faith that endures, we must respond to God's working in the present. We must respond to God's working in the present. So the author has given this list of things to remember. Remember those earlier days, how your faith endured. And then he says, therefore, therefore. So you went through all of this stuff previously. And you had a faith that endured. And for this reason, then he gives how we must respond to God's working in the present. The author then lays out two ways that the readers can respond to God's working in the present. First, we respond to God's working in the present with confidence. He says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. To be clear, this is not about self-confidence. It's not about, well, i gotta, I got to have all this confidence in myself. i got to muster up all this confidence. i got to tell myself I can do it. It's about confidence in Christ. I'm so Sick of hearing pastors preach sermons that talk about believing in yourself. Telling people if they just had confidence in themselves, they would accomplish so much more. That's a worldly idea. It doesn't come from the Scripture. I have zero confidence that I can do anything apart from Christ. Listen to the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Corinthians. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. That word sufficient in the Greek means adequate. It could be said, not that we are adequate in ourselves. Oh, that we would understand that our confidence is in Christ. Four times the author uses this word confidence. In chapter 3, verse 6, we are told, hold fast our confidence and our boasting um, in our hope. In verse four, or chapter 4, verse 16, we are to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. In chapter 10, verse 19, he reminds us that we have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus Christ. All of this confidence has nothing to do with us, but is outside of us. It's an external influence that gives us the confidence to do, to do any of this. And that is that we have confidence in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. The author says to maintain your confidence. And God will reward it. The idea is that in the midst of persecution, you maintain your confidence in the finished work of Jesus Christ and the truth of the gospel of Jesus. 
The author is telling the reader that currently you may be facing opposition, but now is not the time to cast away your confident confession of Christ. But now is the time to proclaim with confidence the gospel message. What is needed in the face of trials and persecutions is boldness because we have been freed from the bondage of fear. We know what God has called us to do and we do it. Only the person that is convinced of the righteousness of their cause has the heart assured to do what is well-pleasing to God. In the face of criticism and condemnation and threats, we can stand unmovable because our confidence remains in Christ. Oh, Christian, this should speak to us today as we allow so much in this world to steal away our confidence and we cast it away like it's nothing. We allow our mind to dwell on the difficulty that is set before us or the disadvantages that we feel we may have. We think of the suffering we might go through if we remain faithful to Christ or we listen to the whisper of Satan and we compromise just a little in order to avoid trouble in our lives. And then our confidence gets weakened and we can blame no one but ourselves. We struggle with confidence in Christ. We refuse to share the gospel with others because we're not confident in our Jesus. We refuse to take bold steps of faith because we are not confident in our Jesus. Is our God some sort of wimpy God who's not in control or is He really the God of this universe? I challenge you, dwell on the promises of God and realize it is an honor to suffer for the sake of Christ. Remind yourself that whatever you lose on this earth is not worthy to be compared to what you will gain in heaven. Oh, that we would understand, rest assured that if God is for you, then why in the world should we ever care who is against us? Be confident in Christ. Such confidence that the core of saving faith, it produces a great reward, which is heaven and eternal glory with Jesus Christ. It says, respond with with confidence. And it says respond. Respond to God's working in the present with perseverance. They didn't need some sort of merit. What they needed was endurance. They needed to persevere. In the face of pressure and suffering and discouragement, if we're going to do the will of God, it requires that we persevere. God's will here is a reference to his moral commandments and priorities as revealed to us in his word. When we're faced with trials, one of the easiest things to do is justify moral compromise. But the author is saying that we must persevere even when times are hard. We don't compromise. The Hebrew Christians, just like us, were tempted to become weary in well-doing. Many of them who once appeared to be zealous for the Lord had apostatized. Some of them were just worn out. And so the author is telling them, persevere. Don't give in. Just to, You have to endure. The point is that we respond uh, to God in obedience, even if it means suffering or persecution. We respond with obedience. We persevere even if others seem not to be. And after we have suffered, we receive God's promise of Salvation, the result of perseverance, is the receiving of the promise. Endurance is not a precondition for God making the promise, but it's an expression of confidence that God will keep the promise. To have a faith that endures, we must respond to God's working in the present by having confidence in Christ and by persevering even when times are hard. And lastly, to have a faith that endures, we must look to the promise of the future. 
The preacher of Hebrews is emphasizing the need of faith for the future. He quotes Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. This quote was originally given in Habakkuk because the prophet had repeatedly complained about the advancement of injustice and the suffering of the righteous. And God's response was, the righteous will live by faith. God is saying, live by faith, Habakkuk. Now this quote here in Hebrews is taken from the Septuagint's rearranged messianic rendering of the Hebrew text. However, the application remains the same. The righteous will live by faith. And so what we see the author saying is Jesus is coming back soon. How God views eternity. The saved will persevere by their faith and the lost will shrink back. So live by faith and let your life be governed by what is eternal. So let's quickly look at those three. How God views eternity. The author says in a little while the coming one will come and will not delay. Now some People read this verse and they scoff and they will say things like, you Christians are always saying that Jesus will return even though your Bible, um, even your Bible says that he's going to return soon and he hasn't come. Now anyone that has ever taken a trip with kids knows these words. Are we there yet? Or how much farther? I mean, that's just what gets said. Because our mind craves an end. To what we perhaps deem as suffering. And for some reason, knowing that it's not much longer helps you endure. Right? And that's what the Smurfs always ask Papa Smurf. And he said, not far now. Isn't that how we respond a lot of times? Just a little while. Now, this is not from our perspective, but this is from God's perspective. It says, just a little while. Here's, here's what we must understand, Christian. This present life is but a short time. It is a little while. James calls it a mere vapor. Our life on this earth is minuscule in comparison to eternity in heaven. This is why Paul could say, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond comparison. If we want an enduring faith, we must look to the promise of the future and not how we view eternity, but how God views it. No that we are here on this earth for just a little while. Secondly, live by faith. Live by faith. In verse 38, he makes it clear that, uh, that the righteous will live by faith, but the lost will shrink back. The Christian life is, not, is a marathon. It's not a sprint. Those who are righteous will live by faith. And the only way we can become righteous is by the, by the way of God. If God declares us righteous, saving faith And one's life is not a once and done deal, but it is an ongoing, it is something that we must live by. In other words, it requires trusting in God's promise every day. Salvation that's found in Jesus Christ. Listen to what Peter said to Christians who are suffering and he reminds them of their inheritance. He says, it is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Faith causes us to resign all our affairs to Christ, disposing and patiently waiting on Him. Too many Christians live their lives based on feelings and not faith. We make decisions in life based on feelings. We decide what we will do or not do based on feeling. 
However, we are to walk in our Christian life, not by feeling, but by faith. Our aim in life is to please God, not man, which is why in chapter 11, the author will say, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Failure to trust God is to make him out to be a liar and to question his integrity, which is precisely why it says this person who shrinks back, what it says about him, my soul has no pleasure in him. Because that person is lacking faith, which is what it takes to please God. The person who thinks that they can refuse to take up their cross daily to somehow escape the reproach of the world and yet go to heaven is delusional. Jesus said, whoever will save his life will lose it. This person is looking for an out. They're, they're searching for what is temporary, focus on what is worldly, and they care more about the world and their personal comfort than they do God. And they will lose their soul for eternity. Genuine faith perseveres through the trials. False believers shrink back, find destruction. Live by faith. And lastly, he says, let your life be governed by what's eternal. Look at what the author says. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere. What he is saying is this threat, all of this that I just said about the righteous living by faith, that the one who lacks faith, I have no pleasure in him, that should serve to govern our life. Because eternity is what matters. Here's my takeaway. We should live our lives in such a way that if God's promises about heaven are not true, we look like fools. We should live our lives in such a way that if God's promises about heaven are not true, we look like fools. Paul said that the suffering he went through, that we're not worthy to be, to be compared to the glory that is revealed to us. If heaven and hell are real, we must live by faith in the promises of God. The complete and final salvation found in Christ is dependent upon his continued trust in and obedience to God in Christ. It's not the cause of salvation, but it's the evidence of salvation. You say, well, pastor, what do I do with this message? Well, first of all, I trust that you have a faith that endures. That you remember how God worked in the past. That he enlightened you. And that you had joy regardless of your circumstances. And you had a better and abiding possession. That you respond to God's working in the presence with confidence and perseverance. That you would look to the promise of the future knowing how God views eternity and live by faith and having your life governed by what is eternal. We need this. We need to understand that God is our great reward and He is so much better than anything that this world has to offer. If we don't, we will love the world just like everyone else. We will love the things of this world, which are temporary. We lose them at death. But God is forever. Everything that this world has to offer you is temporary. You will one day die 
and lose it all. Your house, your car, your stuff. It does not last forever. And God is better. There is no comparison. You say, well, what do I do? You spend your time, your money, and your life as if God's promises are true. Because they are. So I challenge you, live the faith that endures. Live with a faith that looks to eternity. Stupefy the world as they look on and see someone living with the kingdom in mind. Are you doing that this morning? Here in a moment, we're going to sing a song. I'm going to give you a chance to respond. If you'd like to do that, then after we sing that song, we will go right into communion. I'm going to give you a chance to respond to this message this morning. Ask yourself this morning, do I have a faith that endures? Do I even have a faith? Do I know Christ as my Savior? And maybe the Lord's spoken to you in some way, shape, or form this morning, and you need to respond to that. I'll be standing down front, love to pray with you or talk with you or whatever it might be. If you don't want to come forward, you can pray in your pew. If you want to talk afterwards, I'll, I'll talk with you afterwards. But uh, however you feel you need to respond, I want to give you that opportunity. Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll sing. Father, thank you.